Sacre bleu. France's regulatory agency recalls the Apple iPhone 12 over concerns about radiation admissions. And the FCC levies the first ever space junk fine on Dish Network. We're starting to litter the heavens the way that we do it around here. My heavens. And leave it alone. Experts give at least five reasons not to rake your leaves this fall. I'm Bruce. And I'm Nate. We're two OBGYNs who care about the environment and how it affects our patients. So in 2020, we published the first paper about climate change and pregnancy in a top medical journal. It had tables and everything. The day the paper came out, the New York Times wrote about our findings. And 10 hours later, Joe Biden tweeted at us. Then a bunch of other things happened. So now, like everybody else, we've got a podcast. Welcome to the Green Docs. In this episode, we'll be talking with the amazing Rhonda Carnegie, who not only founded TED Women and the TED Institute, but she's now part of Project Dandelion, a new women-led global climate justice campaign. I'm Bruce Picard, an OBGYN in Southern California, a longtime eco-activist, proud tree hugger and kelp lover. And I'm Nate DiNicola, also an OBGYN in Southern California, and I'm the environmental health expert for our national and international OBGYN societies. Bruce, you, but when we last talked, you were on your way to Washington, D.C. for an Eco-America event. Any highlights right. from that trip? The conference was a one-day event, but it was full of people from around the country. I got to talk with the executive director of the American Public Health Association, a lot of other luminaries and interesting people. It's always great to be around those folks. But as far as highlights, I got all day the day before the conference to walk around what's called the Mall in Washington, D.C., which is where the Smithsonian Museums are. And it's just always so inspiring to see the monuments. I walked around the Capitol, saw a couple of members of Congress walk right by, managed not to say anything terribly snide to them. And uh, otherwise, it was a great trip. I love going to D.C. So are you going to be on a no-fly list now? Are you still allowed to go to your conference in New Zealand? <laughs> I'm hoping they'll let me go. Yeah, I could definitely have gotten into trouble with some of the things I murmured, but that's a whole nother story. What's going on with you? What's new this week? Well, I still want to follow up with the, the real highlight I was waiting for from DC, which is, did you get to Jack Rose and enjoy any Sons of Scotland? I took a couple of people along with me from the conference after dinner, and we went over to this, uh, as I mentioned in the last episode, really pretty world famous whiskey saloon in the heart of D.C., and they were amazed by it. And we sat around talking and got to sample some really good single malt from Scotland, the likes of which I've never heard of. But they were wonderfully smooth, and everybody had a good time. Well, I think the only way that we can top that is by getting to Scotland, the motherland herself. I think we got to find a conference there one of these times. Green Doc's got to go on the road to Scotland. Definitely, that's in order. Aye. So what's going on with you? What have you been up to? I just got back from a family wedding in Omaha, Nebraska, which is a, a bit of my family's roots. My mom and her family all grew up there in Omaha. My dad met her when he was doing his medical school and residency at Creighton. It was a really cool homecoming. And this kind of thing that happens like only in smaller towns, I feel like in the Midwest, you just run into people wherever you go. Kendall had scoped out some interesting bars and speakeasies. And as we walk into one of these hotels next to it, there completely unexpectedly is this sign for a regional ACOG, you know, national OBGYN conference taking place in the hotel. 
And as we walk outside the front door of the hotel, there is none other than Dr. Kristen Lyerly, our uh, first guest from season one, rolling up her sleeves and working on legislative affairs for like, you know, the whole weekend. Just you know, a fun celebrity sighting for the, for the Green Docs fans. Did you give her a Green Docs greeting from both of us, I hope? We have to decide what that is still, but uh, but yes, yeah, we gave <laughs> we gave her a Green Dog shout out. She's amazing. I hope we can get her back on the show soon. Yeah, well, we'll anyway. have to. There's, there's going to be a lot to follow up on in uh, in season two with a few of our guests, I think. And that was not the only celebrity encounter in Omaha, Nebraska. Uh, I also just have to mention real quick that my dad gives the best tour of Omaha, Nebraska you'll ever find, and we kind of do a circuit of connecting. Basically, like a, like a Hollywood tour of all these celebrities and famous people who came from Omaha. I won't run the whole list because he's told me this tour is proprietary. Uh, some names you might not know from Omaha, like Marlon Brando, Fred Astaire, and Malcolm X. Amazing. I would not have guessed any of those. So, should we get into our headlines? Let's talk about cell phones. What's this brouhaha about the iPhone? Well, th- they keep just becoming these kind of odd stories out of Paris, right as... We're headed there for our international OBGYN Congress. There's the story about Apple uh, iPhone 12 being recalled. You may have seen there are bed bugs all over Paris, kind of preparing differently for this conference now. But for the iPhone story, basically, it failed a test based on very, very strict safety requirements for how much emission comes out. And these are, just to be clear, they're, they're non-ionizing radiation, which means they are not known to cause cancer. The thresholds that France has is well below any number that is considered even potentially dangerous to humans. So it really is like erring on the side of ultimate caution. And the iPhone was able to pass the test after a software update. It seems like it's a bit of a, maybe just a signal to pay attention to rather than a a health alarm. Yes. And I have to defend Apple because I've been all Apple myself since 1992. I'm a huge fan. And this was just the iPhone 12. It wasn't any of the other models of the iPhone. And again, just to underline it, there was no thought that this actually posed a threat to our health, this tiny amount of radiation and this test that was somewhat artificial. And also, many other cell phones have run afoul of the French. Over 40 of them have faced a similar fate. So Apple fixed it, and I think we're okay. Yeah. More to say about some health tips regarding cell phones in general, but at the very end when we cover our OB 2.0. Okay, well, let's talk a little bit about this space junk fine on Dish Network. In a story reported in Yahoo News this week, the network is going to have to pay $150,000 for not properly deorbiting an expired Echostar satellite last year. The potential for harm from space junk is not just theoretical. Back in 2007, a Chinese rocket destroyed a satellite which generated an estimated 150,000 space fragments that are still up there going around and around. And the European Space Agency says there are more than 34,000 bits of sizable space debris that could potentially harm satellites. Was it the story that jumped out to you or is it the word deorbiting? <laughs> <laughs> this word deorbiting does sound a wee bit ominous. I don't think I ever want to be deorbited. But I guess they have some way that they, once a satellite has expired or stopped working, that they can get it out of orbit, get it out of harm's way. Yeah, I think I'd like to deorbit out of my call schedule. Uh, at some point. <laughs> I'm with you. Uh, so do you think, I mean, there's a lot to you said about space exploration and what it means for the future of humanity or, or future just species, I suppose. It seems to me that humans just have this propensity to pollute. And no matter where we go, uh, it, it almost needs to just be factored in 
We can't pretend like it's not going to happen. So here we go. We've, we've cluttered space already. Uh, that was pretty quick. But at least it's being talked about. And I think it's something we can do better, which is always what we try to focus on on our show. We have tendencies potentially that aren't the best, but we can do better. Let's talk about this uh, leafing story that you suggested. Yeah, well, well, speaking of clutter, this is a bit of a contradiction here. We'll just have to embrace that paradox because the story here is actually to kind of leave the clutter where it is when it comes to fall foliage. And the, the experts are recommending this for a number of reasons. The first is just kind of purely public service announcement and, and benefit to your lawn that there's kind of some natural organic material that creates great organic mulch and it, it'll help your lawn. But the, the second reason is that there really is an ecosystem to consider because a lot of small critters and caterpillars and other insects live in these leaves. And you might think, well, that's gross. I don't want them near me, but they actually end up helping the whole area. And there's a unique take on this ecosystem in the Washington Post this month where they wrote about how the insects that, that live in these leaves, uh, especially the mosquitoes, kind of create a natural balance of the mosquito population. And if you take them away, if you get rid of all the leaves, and so there's, there's very, very few mosquitoes left, the ones that remain are especially like resilient, and they're kind of the most dangerous ones. They have the most potentially uh, deadly or hazardous diseases to humans. And so you're really better off by having these ecosystems in place to help balance out the mosquito and vector-borne illness in, a, in an area. That is fascinating. And I want to compliment our producers for supplying no small amount of yard cleaning noise to the background of this recording. <laughs> well, okay. So that's number three. That's the third benefit. I, I promised five at the top of the show. The third benefit is that, you know, if realistically, people aren't really raking leaves as much anymore. They're using these leaf blowers. As you'll hear in the background, I, I think they make a lot of noise. And they're powered typically by fossil fuel type things, and they create air pollution like PM2.5. And there are alternatives now. In our, in our city, in Del Mar, we have an ordinance against the use of leaf blowers because of the noise and also the air pollution they create. But there are electric alternatives now, which are far quieter. That's what we've got going around my complex. And I barely notice them. Very different from the old school types. Well, we could use some of those here. Have you uh, ever heard of this comedian uh, named Ismo? <laughs> no. He, uh, he, he comes from Finland, uh, but he's starting to take on a name here in the United States. He goes on tour and he has a bit about this. You know, he, he says like, you know, they're always saying we can put a man on the moon or they can put a man on the moon, but they can't make quiet leaf blowers. And he says, <laughs> you know, I'm pretty sure it's not the same people working on NASA sending <laughs> us, uh, you know, into orbit and, uh, and go to the moon. I think if they wanted to, they probably could make quiet leaf blowers. Yeah, they could maybe have a side gig, they could, something they could work on the weekends and knock that one out in a, in a very short time. Well, that would be Green Dock supported. Absolutely. One quick reminder, if you have any comments or questions about what we talk about in the episode, please send us those by way of our website, greendocspodcast.com. And we'll be back very soon with our interview with Rhonda Carnegie. And we're back, and we are thrilled to talk to Rhonda Carnegie, who is known as a strategic and visionary executive with Relentless Drive. A whole lot we can say about her. Rhonda joined the TED organization in 2008. She founded TED Women and the TED Institute, and then went on to be the chief innovation officer at the Female Quotient. Rhonda is now the co-founder of Connected Women Leaders. And also, she is with Project Dandelion that we're going to talk about today, a women-led 
global climate justice organization that shifts the narrative from fear to hope. Rhonda has had an absolutely amazing career, and we are thrilled to talk to her today. Welcome, Rhonda Carnegie. Thank you. What a fun opportunity to start my day with both of you. <laughs> and I know that this is a, it's been an early day for you, right? You've been uh, at this for a few hours already. Who were who you talking to at 5 a.m.? Oh, my goodness. Uh, so many different organizations this morning. But uh, yeah, I started off uh, connecting with uh, women in Singapore this morning who are actually really focusing on moments of reinvention for women in business. That was very that was really enlightening to hear from those two women. And then I just finished a conversation with uh, someone who's deep, uh, a foundation who's deep in climate work, talking about the connection between climate and democracy. So that was uh, an incredible conversation as well, as we sort of think about all the connections to climate and how it's coming up. So it was great to hear the work that they're doing and uh, some of the work that's happening globally. And just for the audience's sake, I have to make a full disclosure. Rhonda and I know each other. We go back quite a ways. In the early days before I even started college, I used to work for Rhonda's dad, Mort Greenspoon, who was a innovative optometrist in Los Angeles. And he changed my life in, in two really huge ways. First of all, he got me out of my Coke bottle lens glasses and got me my first pair of contact lenses, which when you're 16, 17 years old and just trying to look normal and maybe get girls to smile at you from time to time, it made a huge impact on my life. But an even bigger one was the way that Dr. Greenspoon treated me as a patient. And I ended up actually getting to work for him for a couple of years, making eyeglasses. And uh, it was my first experience as a clinician, as someone who was dealing with patients. And everything that I learned of importance in terms of how to relate to patients came from Rhonda's father. So do you remember those days when you and I first met? I do. Of course, I, as a teenage girl, remember them far differently than I think you did. <laughs> and I think I remember the moment where my father asked if you would give me a ride home and you asked me to put on my seatbelt. And that was like <laughs> a big deal. But um, yes, I do really remember those days. And of course, my father is someone who is, has huge impact in my life, a huge inspiration to me. And I'm glad to know to you as well. And, and that began our friendship, which has been a meaningful and important friendship in my life. Well, he absolutely did. And as a matter of fact, Rhonda, I do want to also share with you that my buddy Phil and I were talking just a couple of days ago, and I, I know you remember Phil, and we were talking about exactly this, how your dad had really set the bar for us and taught us that you could be competent and also really caring and warm with patients. And doctors back way back then were really kind of stuffy and unapproachable. And Dr. Mort, he really set the standard for us and taught us that it was okay to be us and to be human and to smile and to make patients feel better in addition to doing things for them. So you and your family are incredibly important to me and your father was a huge influence. But let's get back to what we're talking about today. I did not know that history, but uh, it looks like you'd be very proud to be watching this conversation here. And very badly want to get a picture of Bruce with the Coke bottle glasses. Rhonda, I don't know if you can dig that up for the archives, but uh, we'd be happy to put it in our, in our show notes. I love what you said about the global connections for this. 
because it really comes up so quickly when you start talking about anything involving the climate that there's no real geographic borders. They certainly don't follow the lines we have on maps. It really has to have a, a coalition a- across countries and, yeah, even governments, like you mentioned, with democracies. How did you come to Project Dandelion to approach this topic? And if you could also give us just one definition as we're kind of going through this for the audience about climate justice and what that means. That is one of these things with climate. It's like, how do we decode the complexity? Like people are like, they get very caught up on the words. Today, I think climate justice is climate safety. You know, as we're hearing about everything that's happening with climate around the world, how can we create a more, you know, safe experience around it? So I think we'll dig in a little bit more about climate justice, which is the intersection of so many justices. But today, I think when we talk about climate justice, we talk about climate safety. And for the listeners who are learning about all the different organizations working on this, where does Project Dandelion fit in to the, the global puzzle for improving climate safety? Let me just go back because I think one of the questions that you were asking is sort of what brought me to this work with the Project Andy Lyon. And um, after I left TED, I did a fellowship at the Rockefeller Foundation and really just wanted to understand the role of narratives and, and, and how they come into play in terms of changing the way we're solving problems. So back in 2017, after TED, Pat Mitchell, who's the editorial director of TED Women, who co-founded TED Women with me, along with Hafsat Abiola, who's the president of Women in Africa, decided to bring together a cohort of women leaders to focus on solving world problems. And we decided, let's take a look at food security and global health and climate justice. Well, one of those who attended our cohort was Mary Robinson, the former president of Ireland. And she was gracious, but firm. And she really reminded us that climate justice is the issue of our time and that all of our focus areas that we were focused on are really what we're really talking about is the climate crisis. This reorientation and shift was really the start of Project Dandelion. After we do, did due diligence, and this will, you know, I think we cannot say this enough, that climate right now is a narrative crisis, and that we looked at the fact that between 1986 and 2015, big oil spent $3.6 billion combined on advertising. And, you know, that changed depending on what was happening in terms of the congressional agenda, but And that's like, that's a lot to go up against. And so we really felt that we had to have this goal of narrative building that united and created solidarity among women leaders who were either storytellers or frontline activists or those who we call our catalysts for advocacy and policy. And these are also along with those who are creating women-led solutions. We are a dandelion for a reason, and that is that dandelion is so resilient. I don't know if you know about dandelions, but when you blow on a dandelion, their mission is to spread. It is the only flower that blooms on every continent, and it only has one goal, and that's to seed more dandelions, and that's our goal too. So that is the beginning of Dandelion, and we actually we begin to activate it, but we haven't even launched the campaign. So this is really one of the first times that we're talking about it, which is so exciting. And one of the things that we've talked about on this show is how over the years, just the last few years, we've seen a real increase in collaboration amongst climate organizations. We're seeing a lot of groups, instead of being lost in their silos, 
talking to each other and putting on events together and meeting for Climate Week in New York. And these networks are growing. So it sounds like Dandelion is really up to amplifying this momentum that's already starting to build. Completely. I think exactly what you're saying. Dandelion is in service of all that work. And you also point out in this organization sort of its mission statement, it's really important, I think the critical part of climate justice is that the people that are least responsible for the climate crisis are suffering the most, and especially women and girls. What is it about women in particular that you think are really key to solving this climate crisis? Well, I think, first of all, just like just in the conversations I had this morning, unlike in the development space, gender equality is understood or gender equity is understood. It's talked about all the time. But in the climate space, outside of it impacting women, it's not considered. It's really important for us to have women have a seat at the table. Right now, we really feel like women are just shouting through the windows in terms of what's going on. But the numbers are pretty devastating when we look at the fact that women are more times likely to die in climate-related disasters than men. 80% of those displaced by climate are women. And this fact, which I saw yesterday, was like a real surprise to me, devastating, that by 2025, the climate crisis will prevent over 12 million girls from completing their education every year. And so this is proximity to the problem, right? That these lived experience put women in a unique position to really be solution makers. And when we look on the solution front, we do, we are seeing some really promising things that countries with women in higher social and political status have 12% lower CO2 emissions. Women think for the collective whole rather than for themselves, and they adopt faster than men. And so in conservation and national resource management, women bring stricter and more sustainable rules to the table. So those are, you know, just, you know, just to say that in the face of the climate crisis, women are really rising as architects of change. And that is something that we really believe that we have to get in front of, because we do feel that we're on the cusp of a climate safe world. One of the things that we end up talking about quite a bit on on this podcast is uh, something called population dynamics. Whether they are mm. stable, which would be you know low infant mortality rates, low maternal mortality rates, fairly stable birth rates, or unstable, which is just the opposite, you know high infant mortality, high maternal mortality, high birth rates. And one of the key factors to contributing to a stable population dynamic is education of young girls. And along with that, uh, other things that empower women in society. And so it sounds like what you're talking about is a lot along those lines, that this is a lot of what we need worldwide to bring this coalition of more balanced leadership. Is that something that Project Dandelion sees as a, a core solution? Yeah, most definitely. I mean, I think that we think when we when we look at What's happening on the front lines, which is what's happening in terms of women sharing their lived experiences and really fighting for some of these key issues. We really think just the advocacy piece of it in terms of policies. We have women who are human rights lawyers who are fighting on the front lines in terms of getting laws in place, human rights treaties, all of these things will all impact this larger idea of what we need to do to really move things forward at the pace that we have to in the next seven years to really create the change that we need to to have the future that we want. Yes, obviously the timing is absolutely critical and urgency is the issue. 
And so whatever we can do to speed up solutions is vital. I think it's not at all coincidental that we have seen an increase in collaboration across the climate movement, everything from universities to nonprofits to governments. And I think at the same time, again, it's not a coincidence that we've seen a lot more women rise to leadership positions within these organizations. I just personally happen to think women are better at collaborating than men are. I think it's just in your nature, which is obviously super important right now. But the organization lays out some really big demands. On the homepage, you talk about stopping governments from subsidizing fossil fuels and paying up for those suffering first and worst. These are really worthwhile goals, but getting the two billion people at risk and becoming aware to actually act is really a huge deal. What steps is the organization taking to, to make that happen? Yeah, I mean, I think you bring up a, a really big point. So those seven demands that we have on the website are representative of the whole movement. Like, in other words, if you took all the demands, those are all the demands that everyone's saying. And so because Project Dandelion is in service of this, we really believe that one, we have to get women who are in climate already to be to talk about their accountability and action to move things forward so we get momentum there but really there was this really interesting study from Yale Communications that says that there are a huge number of people who are what we're calling active and alarmed they're alarmed but not yet active that is what we need to do and Ultimately, if we can get everyone who's focused on the women's movement to move over to climate, or we can begin to get this, let's say, 2 billion people who are sitting on the sidelines to get into the discussion and to decode the complexity to do that, then we will have really leveraged all our networks to create change. So that is really the mission of what we're doing. And Worthy, who is a strategic agency that we've brought on to do this campaign with us was very successful with the one campaign, the red campaign. They did an amazing campaign around the pandemic. So they are really good at social impact campaigns. And so for us, it's not everyone who's in the climate movement right now. It's to get other people to join us and to feel that it's more, you know, I think, Bruce, we've talked about it more than just buying bamboo straws, but really understanding how they can get into this conversation. Uh, yeah, we've, we've talked a lot about straws on this podcast. We have, we have a lot mm -hmm. to say about that. <laughs> Overall, I don't like paper straws. They, they just don't work. So th this is such a, I think, important concept of transitioning this group of the population who are alarmed but not yet activated. And uh, it sounds like a big portion of that could be women or people who are part of a, a women empowerment movement. Just here on our podcast, both Bruce and I will uh, very soon be having an international audience. Bruce is going to Australia to give a keynote lecture. Uh, I'll be attending the International OBGYN Congress in Paris next week. We'll be sitting in front of these these global audiences. Are there any narratives or or solutions that, in the spirit of Project Dandelion and and spreading these seeds, that we can tell the audience that might move people who are in that alarm state to get them to be activated? I think what we you know we you you had said earlier we're really focusing on hope instead of fear. So one of our connected women leaders, who is Jade Begay, who runs NDN and incredible work from the indigenous community says, what if the best of times are ahead of us? 
And this is imagining that we've solved this, right? And um, most of the work that has been done has been done, you know, a lot of talk about policy, about infrastructure, about tech and all the solutions. But we have to make this really be a heart story. You know, we've got to move it from the head to the heart. So I think the message would be that we are actually on the cusp of a climate safe world. And we're not moving fast enough to cut carbon emissions, and we are facing a crisis here. And that if, even if all the pledges of governments and corporations and investments are fully implemented, we're not on course to live a livable world. And so we want to talk about this gap that exists between the climate movement that really presents an opportunity to accelerate change by reaching the climate community and raising awareness united under a single vision. So it is really about this power of uniting. And I am going to send both of you a dandelion pin. We have had world leaders. We've had this really exciting thing where people are pinning other people, which says, I am standing in solidarity for a unification in this movement to create change. And if we can, that that in itself would be a huge accomplishment. So pins are on their way. <laughs> We'll be wearing them get, at the next conferences. Uh, I, I can't wait to get my pin. And Bruce, we were just talking about how to expand our presence. I think we'll be on Pinterest. We'll be sharing this across all our socials. <laughs> yes, I can't wait to get my pin. And I am starting to feel this rising sense of optimism when you talk. It's not just about hope. And we've mentioned earlier on our podcast about how the climate crisis is a symptom of so many other ills in society. So when you talk about the kind of future that we could create and the options that are there, there's just so much that's been, I think, ignored or not sufficiently addressed that affects society. And also on a, in an even bigger lens, there are so many countries where people are below the standards of living that are even acceptable that we can bring along through this. So I find that this is a message that really resonates with audiences when I've given some talks is when we talk about the potential for not just stopping nature from breaking down, but actually solving these societal ills. I would imagine that when you do this work with the other dandelions out there, that you end up feeling kind of energized by the whole thing. We do, because if we can give people a new narrative, you can imagine that someone who is in Africa, who is a farmer, begins to understand how they can be a part of change. And that is what gets really, is really, really exciting. And, you know, here in the U.S., you know, a group called Science Moms has has having great success. And I know that a lot of your work is thinking about moms and, um, and, and, and really the next generation. We're really looking for this shining stars that are breaking through and showing examples. And again, just giving us all the narrative playlist about what is that path forward so that others can follow. And that's why this podcast is so important. So speaking of the narrative playlist, and I, I almost don't want to ask this question because I feel like we're in a positive spot right now. We've kind of offered some hope. And so I don't want to ask negative things, but I do want to know if, if there's anything in this playlist that can be used as a, as a rebuttal, do you have some common rebuttals that you provide when we receive pushback? Things, maybe not the obvious ones like just denying the science, which, which I think has kind of been toppled. But when there are public conversations about, uh, well, you know, the, the cost of these green energies is actually more than the cost of coal in terms of lithium battery mining, or the green industries are just trying to make their money the same way the oil industry is trying to make theirs, and there's really no difference. What, what, what can we say to the people who are providing pushback? 
For a long time in this movement, there was just even not acknowledgement of the crisis. And I think everything that we're seeing with weather, even though there are some deniers, people, I think the most exciting thing about the movement is that people are acknowledging that there is a problem. So I would say behind the scenes, I'd say start following the money because you're going to see those people on the other side starting to make green investments, starting, you're going to see that as soon as they see that there's money in it, you're going to see that shift. And we're seeing it as well, just in terms of the green economy, the promise of the green economy, where the the money from the infrastructure bill is being um, spent. I attended a conference in July with 700 mayors from across the country. And believe me, they're thinking about climate resilience and what they can do around it. There is this push. And so I think that we're going to start seeing the momentum behind the push. And we have to replace the narrative and give them with something that they can replace that with. But I, I see a shift most definitely. When we're talking to our audiences at these upcoming conferences and they're feeling charged, we got them activated and they want to support Project Dandelion and, and, and spread their own messages. What, what can people do to support Project Dandelion and, and more broadly this, this mission? The first part of this campaign is really going to be acknowledging that you are a dandelion, and that means that you are leading change. So for one, definitely go to our website, which we love everyone listening to go to projectdandelion.com to learn more and to become a dandelion. And when you say I am a dandelion. You are committing to a few ideals that we want to strive to uphold. And so being a dandelion means prioritizing justice and recognizing that the least responsible are the most impacted, which we all agree. We're not afraid to call out who is responsible. Being a dandelion means centering the voices and experiences of women, inclusive of all backgrounds and gender expressions. We want them to know we got their back. And being a dandelion means valuing community and knowing the power of collective action. Our goal is to create two times a year where we'll all come around, around dandelion to do this work. And we're hoping for that first of those activations to be this fall in November. Yes, I noticed that there are a number of of conferences and meetings. Uh, You were all at Climate Week just recently, but lots of other different places where people could come and and talk to you. But but how about us guys? I'm certainly looking forward to wearing my dandelion pin all the time. But what can men do to support this work? Because I think a lot of us get the importance of what this is as well. It's a women-led, but not women-only movement. That's why I'm, you know, we we want you to proudly wear the pins. It's not, it just gives women an opportunity to be a part of leading the solutions. Not to say they're the only ones, but it is really, you know, with women, interestingly enough, many times they need an invitation. The dandelion is an invitation, but it's also an invitation for men too. We all got to be in this to solve this. Yes. So men are very much involved in everything that we do. That was a kind of a surprising message we heard from our interviews with uh, the femtech leaders also. For, for one reason or another, our, our podcast ended up talking to a lot of people involved in all the new technology to, to serve women's health. And we heard that message loud and clear that men would often leave the room when the women's topic came up. And the feedback from the leaders was, was no, like, like this is... This is not just half the population. This is this is everyone. There's so much conversation around femtech, yeah, in general. And it is 
if you look at you know, who's actually also to investing um, in femtech. But, you know, technology has been largely men. And um, they say that if we look at just even the growth on the business side of the equation in areas of tech, we've got to get more women in that conversation. And we have, again, I believe everything is about shifting the narrative, even in the percent of investment that's going into femtech for female founders is low. And we have to tell the stories of the breakthroughs of where it's working. And there's a lot of conversation about he for she or she for he and You know, I'm a big believer of like we for we, like how do we just really hold hands and uh, make these things change? I have to tell you, Rhonda, that I was so pleased to see your focus come to this arena because of your long and amazing track record. And I also noticed looking over the Project Dandelion website, just how many other powerful women are signed up, not the least of which is the former president of Ireland. You are really playing at the very, very top of your game right now. And to bring those qualities to this fight is incredibly inspiring. I just know, as Nate mentioned earlier, that your father, had he been able to see this work, would be so pleased with it also. We're exceptionally grateful that you gave us a few minutes of your time today. And we promise to wear our pins and share the work of Project Andaline as widely as we can. Thank you for being here. Thank you both. Really just an incredible time together. Thanks, Rhonda. I think we for we will become a new uh, Green Doc slogan. It'll be on socials very soon. Thank you. Well, that was an incredible conversation with Rhonda. We're so pleased that she joined us. But Nate, I really want to congratulate you. You know, you have a reputation on this podcast for your share of bad puns and lowbrow humor. But you didn't take the bait. Not once did I hear you say, help me, Rhonda. I was so tempted the entire time I was holding back. I've actually got a story about that song, but we'll save that for another time. Well done. Yeah, really uh, left that interview with a sense of optimism and hope, and not just because we met other people working in the same space, but because this is a global effort and there's so much resilience in in the work that Rhonda talked about. This is the segment where we often give the listeners some direction on uh, how to take a summary from the episode and be a, become a healthier, happier person. I, I think I'll keep this one brief, which was that pin looked very appealing. I don't know how you could be wearing a dandelion pin and not be happier. I think everyone should go sign up on the website, become a dandelion, and get a really delightful pin. And as far as our roles in community, I think what she underlined that's so crucial right now is given the speed at which we need to make transformation in all kinds of things we do to promote more resilience against climate change, but also to mitigate or reduce its impact. It's not about the need for new technology. It's about the need for action The best way we can often do that is by speeding up the connections that we have to one another, whatever it is you're doing to work on this problem. And of course, we're always giving you micro nudges to do more. I think it's really important to to consider what other organizations and groups you can be connected to in doing this work. The polling is clear that the great majority of people in this country are either somewhat concerned or very concerned about climate change. So it's very possible that if you're talking to a church group or some other part of your community, this is something that's on their radar. And so the more we can partner with one another, the quicker we can get things done. We can also learn from each other and give each other encouragement. 
I think that's the main lesson to take away from what Rhonda talked about. But I also want to underline what Nate said about going to the website and becoming a dandelion ourselves, because I think we all want to accelerate the work that this particular organization is doing. Absolutely. And to bring it to the patient-doctor relationship and what you could be talking about in an exam room, whether you're the patient or the doctor, this interview reminded me of how central environmental health is to the women's health we provide every day. We talked a lot in the interview about the benefits to society of putting things in place that empower women and and make their voice uh, more prominent and, and more received. And every time we're, we're talking to patients about family planning or contraception or various types of birth control, we really are contributing to those those societal mechanisms that uh, lead to empowerment of women in society. So you, you are actually doing a part in kind of, yeah, you're really mitigating climate crisis, getting even more out of control. And this is kind of a funny tie-in that you know, we talked about running into Kristen Lyardley at the beginning of the episode, randomly in Omaha, Nebraska. But I advise listeners to go back and listen to that first or second episode, uh, Dr. Smith Goes to Washington, where she talked to us a lot about her work on legislative action and uh, providing access to all kinds of reproductive services and how it ties into climate. The uh, second thing to mention here in OB+, which we talked about at the top of the show, was that there are still some things to consider about just general cell phone safety. It is true that we do not have any strong evidence that it is linked to cancer at this point. Uh, thank, thankfully, that's the case. But there are still some things to consider as far as just protecting yourself from what we know is, is radiation coming from the phones. And the first principle is to avoid direct skin contact as much as possible. I do tell my patients, especially when I see them holding their cell phone like under their sports bra or directly against their skin, to not do that. We don't have large metadata, but there are case studies of young women with breast cancer, and we can't identify any risk factor other than we think it was the cell phone directly against the skin. Now, the cell phones have gotten bigger recently, so that's not as common, but, but still to mention it. And the second principle is to create as much distance from the cell phone to your body parts as possible. On the other side of fertility equation, the, the male factor side, which we covered in the episode Daddy Issues, there, again, there, there's not a uh, hard evidence, but there is kind of a, a signal that it could affect sperm quality, sperm production, and testosterone if it's always in the man's pocket, you know, kind of right there on their leg. So I do tell couples who are going through infertility treatment to, to you know, in the effort to do everything to avoid that. I personally, even here in Southern California, when it's hot all year round, I do often wear a sports coat and just put it in the pocket of the sports coat rather than my pants, because even like a few inches from the body seems to be enough to, to minimize your risk. Now, perhaps in future episodes, we'll talk about a whole sleep hygiene and mental health element to the phones. That's too much to get into right now. But uh, yeah, just take some extra precaution with the cell phones because it is still kind of an unsettled space. Thank you for that. That is really good practical advice. And I think I learned a few things there. I'm sure our listeners will appreciate that. And I'm guessing you could use a mocktail about now. Badly. Yeah. When we start talking about the risk <laughs> of cell phones, the WHO included coffee in the same bin as cell phones for potential cancer risk. So as I sit here with both of those right next to me, I, I think I need something to balance it all out. So what are you having? I mentioned we were just in Omaha at some uh, speakeasies that Kendall found. There's this one called Wicked Rabbit which is kind of an Alice in Wonderland themed bar. And you walk through the Looking Glass, which is a liquor shop right there on downtown Omaha. They served us table side. You know, they do these like kind of smoky drinks where they bring some fire right there. These guys brought pyrotechnics. I mean, it was like a blowtorch that they served table side. Now, I can't do that here on the podcast, 
But they did have on their menu a list of mocktails. I have the uh, the Pesca Italiano, which is basically a non-alcoholic Negroni with some peach, ginger, and lime. How about you? What do you have? Okay. Well, I'm doing a little experimenting because these are, uh, it's still early today. I made a morning margi. I've got some of the ritual tequila alternative that I'm mixing with orange juice and a little bit of water. And I have no idea how this is going to taste. So cheers. All right, Bruce, what do you think? It's not bad. I was actually prepared to say this is, <laughs> this is terrible, but actually uh, it's not bad. I think diluting the tequila <clears throat> alternative and mixing it with juice uh, it worked. I think I like it better than I did when I had this before. So how about you? What do you think about yours? I used uh, the phony Negroni base for this, which I'd used before. And I, I stand by these kind of like digestive after dinner drinks to me are the closest to the real thing. This tastes, uh, yeah, just like Negroni's, which I love. A little of extra flavor that Wicked Rabbit recommended with their recipe and in the ginger and lime flavors. So it's kind of a slight variation to it. But yeah, I'm, I'm a fan of these phony Negroni's. Any way that our listeners can get a hold of that particular drink without going all the way to Omaha? Well, I do recommend anyone in the area check out Wicked Rabbit. It was 100% worth the speakeasy uh, experience. For these other bases, yeah, Phony Negroni, I think, is a pretty popular brand. I see it in most liquor stores and even some like uh, grocery stores. Yeah, I think it's pretty nationally available. All right. A new episode of Green Docs will be out shortly, so be sure to subscribe so you don't miss it. Find us on Apple Podcasts or, or wherever you get your listening content or stop by our website, Green Docs Podcast, all one word, greendocspodcast.com, where you can check out the show notes and links for this episode and send us your comments and submit any questions you've got. This first episode of season two of Green Docs was created by Bruce Bacar and Nate Nicola and produced by Podcast 411. Go to our website, greendocspodcast.com. Like, subscribe, send us comments. We really like uh, responding to the questions on air. And check us out every other Thursday. That'll be the upcoming schedule of season two. Thanks for listening. <laughs>